Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to someone I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Murray Olds, who's currently hosting Sports Today on 2UE in Sydney and is also teaching at community radio station 2SER at the University of Technology. We chat about his extraordinary career, which began in Christchurch, New Zealand in 1977 and has taken him to all parts of the world, how the media landscape has changed, teaching radio in Sudan and how he got the nickname Buzzard. Murray Olds is one of the true nice guys in media, so I hope you enjoy our chat. Murray Olds, thanks very much for joining me on the Media Mates podcast. A pleasure, Ralph. Nice to see you again. You're universally known as buzzard in the industry. Where did that come from? Who gave you that slug? That happened way back, way back in the very early day, back in New Zealand, where every, every other kid's called Murray. Right, I don't know why. It must be a Scottish thing. <laughs> and I, I turned up, it was a muzzer, it was already a muzzer or three or four muzzers. Someone said I look like a bird of prey, so um, I became buzzard. That's the uh, that's my version of it anyway. <laughs> so I, t- I brought it over here. How did you end up here? Give us the story, the Murray well, Old story. Mate, I was um, typical middle class white boy in New Zealand, and you know, finished high school, went to uni. I thought I'd be a teacher. They didn't want me at a time when there were no men going into teaching, and I sort of stumbled into journalism because I was only ever good at English and history and stuff. And so I went up to Wellington Polytech in 1977 and at Christmas that year, graduated and started working my hometown newspaper, the Christchurch Press. And I went to work for the sports department for a guy called Dick Brittenden, who was New Zealand's uh, answer to Cardis. He was a beautiful cricket writer. Yeah, Dick was unbelievable. And part of the deal was you had to join his golf club if you joined the sports department. So that was fantastic. We'd, get, we'd be out playing golf at Waitakiri. And uh, I learned a lot from some real classic, real classic uh, blokes. This is long before the internet, long before uh, emails and so on. And we had two major rugby writers, and uh, they took turns to go away on on trips with the All Blacks. Might go to South Africa, might go to the UK, might go to. Yeah. And uh, it was my job as the genie to go in and take copy. And uh, this could come in any time of the day or night, that sort of thing. And um, it took me a while to work out that. If the um, somewhere in the copy was the phrase "the grizzled veteran," that, that had meant the bloke on the road had scored somewhere <laughs> nice. in the UK, up and <laughs> back into Scotland, <laughs> some knee trembler in an alley out the back of the Dundee, and you know the Brewers' arms. And um, it was an honour system. There was no way of checking, so it could have been Brooksy away, or it could have been Kevin away. And the other one would come in and would read that story the, the following morning and say, Packer, he's got another one. <laughs> so the grizzled veteran was uh, was the phrase. And uh, I learned a lot. I was only 23 and, you know, with these old blokes around, lots of drinking and smoking and carrying on. It was uh, it was a great learning curve. Is that how you pretty much cut your teeth and also learnt, I guess, the old school ways of doing journalism and, and, and so forth? I mean, some of the great stories – from from yesteryear, you come from these older guys that have sort of oh, yeah. actually lived it, rather than you know just pick something out, out off the internet and 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 made a, a, a rubbish story about it. It's it's almost it's a corny old cliche now, isn't it? I mean, the internet, nothing's a private for long. You can find out anything in five minutes. Back 
and I, I hate sounding like an old fart, but back in 19, Christmas 1977, it was all done, old-fashioned legwork. I had a motorbike. I had a desk phone. I'd, I was given the um, – <laughs> my first round was speedway writing because back then New Zealand had a – you know, it was old, the old uh, solos and the sidecars. A guy called Ivan Major was multiple world champion and Larry Ross was the up-and-comer. And my first big story, Dick said, I want a 1,000 words on Larry Ross. So I bust my balls for like a week, 10 days, getting all the Larry Ross love and I put a 1,000 words together and this, and it was going in Saturday's morning's newspaper. And I went rushing down to the front gate to get the paper and I've opened it up and there's my, Larry, my big Larry Ross feature and it was three paragraphs. You'd the, been cut. The <laughs> subs had got hold of it and gone, oh, rubbish, <laughs> and they'd carved the fork out of it and um, because there were other, other stories coming along. Yeah. So – I sort of graduated away from print into radio where so much of it is your own, where you're out in the road, you are getting the story from court or from a fire or from police or wherever it might be, and you just file it back to the newsroom and it's your work. Now, where did that start for you? Where did Radio Radio Pacific in Auckland. I uh, started work at 1977, so 78 I was at the press, 79, and then I left the press to go on the road with a band, to tour New Zealand playing drums in a band. And the idea was to get to Auckland, cut your teeth. This is from Christchurch, right, so the South Island. You have to get to Auckland, prove yourself there, and then move to Australia. That was the plan. We got as far as Hamilton up in Waikato, (laughs) and we quickly worked out we weren't that bloody good. Um, So I borrowed the truck one morning in Hamilton. It was the band's truck, and I said, I'm just going up to Auckland. And I said, I'm going to go and find some venues for us to play. And I actually went straight to Radio Hauraki. And a guy there said, look, we haven't got any jobs, but maybe Radio Pacific's got some jobs for a hack. And I went down the road and knocked on the door at Radio Pacific and I started there a month later because that's just what happened. It's a whole lesson for people, I guess, that have probably listened to this, the younger people that are listening to that, about opportunity and the preparedness to actually go and knock on doors and, and do things like that, whereas these days it hardly ever happens. But it's bloody side harder now. It's so much harder. I mean, 1981, I came over to Australia, right? I, I chased a girl over. And, the ch- I mean, I, I, you know, a, a chase ended successfully, but then uh, she gave me the dirty brush and went to London, so I stayed. And she happened to be living in Neutral Bay. And so I looked up in the yellow pages. The nearest radio station was, was 2UE in North Sydney in Miller Street. Went down there and knocked on the door. And they, but when they picked themselves up from laughing, I said, I'd like a job, please. <laughs> and they said, oh, mate, listen to your silly accent. You're cracking jokes. Anyway, um, Charlie Cox was the number two in the newsroom. He's a great mate of mine. And uh, he said, mate, there's no job sounding like that. You sound like a bloody idiot. Oh, oh, I'm sorry about that. Anyway, he rang me a week later and said, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to drive to Brisbane for, for a party. Do you want to come? I said, yeah, it'd be sweet. So in New Zealand, like a four-hour drive is enormous. You have sandwiches and thermos flasks of hot tea and <laughs> there are cushions for mothers to sit on. We drove for 12 hours to get to a party and Charlie said, if you can pronounce half a dozen Aboriginal words by the time we get to Brisbane, I'll give you a job. Right on. <laughs> so um, he went Gulagong and Wollongong and... I managed that successfully, stayed up, up there for about a month, came back and started work at 2UE. So a party got you into 2UE. Yeah, essentially, that's right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's right. How hard was it in that, that early stage? I mean, you mentioned the accent was 
a bit of a problem, but you know, once you're in the door, um, you were prepared to work hard. How did well, you do anything? You do anything. Yeah, uh, I remember my um, my first uh, kind of mentor was was Tony Delroy because uh, uh, because I was the newbie. I did it every weekend with Tony, and one of my first jobs was to go to North Sydney and get Tony's breakfast. And uh, we ended up playing tennis, and uh, we used to play tennis every week. And that's how I ended up meeting my wife-to-be because uh, one of our tennis players uh, was a friend of my wife. Long story. Anyway, she's come back from the UK, my missus-to-be, and uh, we're at the at – the, uh, at the Union Hotel just there on the highway in North Sydney, having played just around the corner up above the uh, the car park there in yeah. North Sydney. And Tony Delroy's there that day and um, and uh, we've come along from, from tennis and there's my bride sitting there just waiting for this other girl who's a mate of hers. Anyway, long story, and I ended up marrying her. But the thing with those early days at TU where you'd go in there long before the internet and you'd go in there, say, 4 o'clock on a, on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, there was like a hundred yards, hundred meters of teleprinter paper that's been spewed out with all the AAP stories on it. So you'd have to rip that off and go through it and sort of start subbing as is like. And the first bulletins might have been five or six, and uh, it was um, real sort of rough and ready. There was none of this computing um, skills required. I learned to type on a on a on a typewriter that was as big as a small fridge. I was going to say typewriters would have been all the, the rage back then. People would have been smoking in the office. It's oh. just a whole different landscape to what it is now. 100%. I remember the day I bought my first portable typewriter. Man, I thought I was Walter Cronkite. I had a – I barred up like a prison window. I mean, it was so exciting. And I used to carry this around, you know, even <laughs> – I'd take it to bed, my portable typewriter. And it was just – it was your tool of trade, you know, and – that old, um, our, what, what was her name? Betty, this beautiful old English. Uh, she never married this woman, and she taught us at Wellington Polytech how to type. Her name was Betty. I can't remember her surname. Now, this was 1977. Were you quick on the type? 80 words a minute, and wow. I had 100 words a minute shorthand when I came out of that. Now, shorthand's that's, a skill yeah, that's, that's going gone. Yeah, that's a art, isn't it? Shorthand's <laughs> a skill that's gone, Ralph, yeah. And I've still got, I don't know, I might use about a dozen Words. I mean, Europe is that, you know, you've got there, da 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 da. There's a, and it's so helpful for court reporting. I'd have no idea how youngsters do it today because no one knows shorthand. No, they don't. No one knows how to write a story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's another story. Yeah. Well, how much did you learn in those early days in terms of being able to, you know, obviously get the raw material and craft it into uh, a news bulletin? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the basic lessons came. From the old school, it was the old guys who say, you can't say that, can't say that. What about putting it this way? What about you do it that way? Attributing, quoting, crafting a story. And those basic lessons that apply to print also apply to uh, radio, apply to television for that matter. All we're doing is telling a story. And there are certain techniques that you have to apply to for, for brevity, for clarity, for radio that you don't apply in longer form, say print or magazines. And that suited your style a whole lot better. 100%. And, you know, learning from the likes of Tony Delroy. And we had some old classics at the old days uh, up at Miller Street. And, we'd, you know, you'd work your tail off. It took me – I had a big learning curve when I first got here. But you'd work your tail off. you get in there at four. You'd stagger down to the rag and famish at half past 12, get hammered, go home at five or six, 
fall asleep, wake up and do it all again. And there were guys like Terry Galloway, Sean Flannery. They were out there. They were breaking stories in a way that I don't know anyone breaks stories anymore. It's all spoon-fed to people. How much of an influence did those guys have on you in terms of just being able to, I guess, create that word picture that only radio can present? That's a very good point. And those old guys did, they, they taught me a hell of a lot. They taught me a hell of a lot about the need for clarity but brevity. You haven't got three minutes to tell a story. You might have 40 seconds. And you've got to get that down because guess what? In that news bulletin, it may last four or five minutes, other stories are competing for space. So you have to be able to tell your story quickly, in a hurry, accurately. And that's a skill you learn in a hurry. You get, you, you, you know, you get kicked in the ass along the way. It's fine. And the other good thing about those early days, you'd be out in the road with your competitors and you'd be busting your backside to try and beat them and they the same back to you. But we'd file our stories and you're straight off to the pub. You know, you're off having a durry. I mean, Terry Galloway used to talk about his breakfast being a cigarette and a look around and then he'd be into it. He'd be into the day's events. It's amazing that you think about how that has all changed now and you've actually gone down the path of actually teaching younger people at 2SER. Yeah. Um, How do you find that in terms of are they receptive to what you have to say? Are they – what sort of encouragement do they need to get along and and advance their careers? If I could maybe personalise it, I don't think I'd get a start anymore because these days it's all university-based. You need a very high score in your HSC to even be considered for a journalism course. Uh, so I don't think I wouldn't qualify on on those grounds a lot. Well, there you go. <laughs> but um, they're, they're very bright, very earnest, and they're very 21st century. It's all about the net. It's all about computing skills. It's all about sourcing stuff in a, in a hurry. But at the end of it all, it's we get back to the my basic premise, and all we all we're doing, we're paid to tell stories. And that, for me, is just the best occupation you can ever imagine. We're paid to tell stories on air. Now, that's as good. That's really fantastic. What a great privilege. Yeah, I mean, people look at it and think, oh, wow, how do you sort of get that job? They don't realise sort of what goes on behind the scenes, I guess. I mean, it, there is a whole lot of fun, but still there is a there is an art and a skill to all of this, isn't there? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's the old... Um, I'm often reminded it's that great Mark Knopfler song, Money for Nothing, The Chicks for Free. You know, that, that's the way you do it. I mean, you turn the radio on, there's a story coming out, that's fine, but you're dead right. In the background there, there is gouging and kicking and screaming and fighting and trying to get that to air before your rivals. And the kids that I'm working with at 2SER, I've been there now, I'm heading into my third year there, uh, and the year before that, I went to Africa. I went to South Sudan. I was going to touch on that. Yeah. And and I had the the best possible job there was teaching a, a a big newsroom and a big radio station about radio programming and how to write news. And this country is the is the world's newest country. It's poor as poor can be, the size of France, but is about two percent of the land area is under cultivation, so everything they eat is imported. They've got no money apart from a bit of oil revenue. A girl is more likely to die having a baby than she is to finish school. Extraordinary. Uh, the newsroom was full of um, – it wasn't all uh, child soldiers, but our general manager walked out of South Sudan with his big brother out to Kenya where he got an education because a lot of our drivers 
they came from the bush in South Sudan and from a very early age as kids they were told if you hear a jeep or truck coming down the path, you get out of your hut and you run because maybe from around the corner would come a jeep or a truck with someone from Sudan in it and bang, you're dead. So it was an extraordinary experience and to have that experience and to come back here and to fall into a job at 2SER, thanks to to, uh, to Melanie, who I met 20-odd years ago when she was uh, Stan Zamanik's producer, Melanie Withnell. She, uh, I, I met Mel back before the Sydney Olympics, and uh, these days she's running two SER. She rang me up and said, "What about a gig?" I said, "Fantastic!" So I've been there ever since. And uh, the kids come in—I shouldn't call them kids, but well, the youngsters come in fresh, uh, and they're all volunteers, right? There's yeah. one young woman comes from Penrith. She gets up at about two, quarter to three, just to get there. That's just to get there. <laughs> That's a hundred percent right, and she's a fantastic student. And young men, young women who, who, who come there, I, I yell at them. I made one of them cry by accident. But I just knock them into shape. They want to tell stories. And I just show them how to write three pars and a clip, three pars and a grab, and that makes up a news bulletin. And it's fantastic watching the light switch go on. Obviously, you would have drawn on a whole lot of experience from when you were news director here at you It's yeah. a similar sort of thing. I'd imagine you would have had youngsters coming through the door as cadets, which they don't seem to have anymore. Um, that's that's and, true and too, yeah. whip them into shape as well as working alongside some experienced journalists. Like how how much enjoyment do you get out of the or satisfaction do you get out of teaching other people your craft? So that would have been like, what, around the 80s, 90s that you would have been news director? Yeah, I went down to South Australia Um my mother-in-law became very ill, so luckily the job came up to be to run the newsroom at 5DN, which was a talk station down there. So I went down there. I spent a year doing that. Then I spent a year on air doing breakfast, actually. And then I spent a year at Channel 9. So I had three years in Adelaide and did three different things. So I came – when they rang me up and said, come back to Sydney and run the 2UE newsroom, what a great thrill to come back here. And, and you know, I had a huge filing cabinet. I must have had – 30 or 40 uh, CVs in there and more every week and you'd get people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds. It wasn't all university then uh, and you're dead right. It was how exciting, what a thrill to pick someone and it was bloody terrible on me. I hated having to make those choices but as vacancies arise, you dip into that filing cabinet and who's, who's good, who's here and they all had cassettes. Yes. They had cassettes and you'd, you'd, you'd pop the cassette and, that's not a bad voice. That's not a bad, hmm, I might give this person a call. How long would you give him on a cassette to impress you? Would you listen all the way through? Well, it depends how bloody long it is. I mean, because we're busy, big hands on 12 every hour and you've got to be writing stuff for the news. But, you know, it's pretty quickly, it becomes apparent pretty quickly if they've got a voice for radio. And if you're going to go on a radio, you have to have some sort of voice. You can't sound like a chipmunk although some announcers seem to get away with it. Um, and you take that process from there. And I mean, I've just had some outstanding people who now it's coming up to 25 years on from when I walked back in the door, 10 years after lobbying, I was back as news director uh, at 2UE. And, and 25 years on from that, he's coming up 30 years on from that. And you see some of the young people who have gone on to do extraordinary things on air, in, in government, 
uh, in the private sector. Who were some of those people that you brought through underneath your um, esteemed tutelage? <laughs> the old ET, esteemed tutelage, <laughs> eh? Well, um, well, Justin Kelly's one guy who springs to mind. I mean, uh, had a fantastic uh, HSC. Just, I think he either topped the state or was in the top handful across New South Wales for English. Not sure how he ever did that, but there you go. No. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and he came to work for us, and he went on. He was uh, Morris Yemmer's press sec for a while and yes uh you know he's done but it's 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 wrong to single out rosa i mean there's a there's, there's 50 or 60 people um who we we're able to give starts to and they've all gone on to do neat things and the good thing about the net these days you can sort of track their careers and the uh, mums now and that sort of 40 and 45 are thinking geez where the bloody where did all those years go uh and you, you you turn the radio on, you turn on the telly, and there they are. They're reporting. They're presenting. They are still in government, in the private sector, in PR. But I've never ever wanted to go down that path. But they're they're making quids on the back of their journalism experience. So it's terrifically. It's I find it very rewarding. I sound like an old fart, but perhaps I am. You know, sixty one <laughs> now, and um, sixty one now. So so. But it would have over, over your period, even even with bringing those young people along. Um, if you think about back on your career, working in news but also working as a, um, a presenter, do any stories stick out in terms of, wow, that was huge mm. and I, I, I did what I had to do to get that story to wear and it was just amazing. I mean, there's so many that you could probably reflect on in, thousand, yeah. in, 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 in your career. Like Even, I guess, reporting from the scene, were there any that, uh, that you look back on and just think, wow, that was uh, that was pretty hectic, but I managed to deliver that and I, I sounded okay too. Well, I've been very lucky. I mean, I've been to 11 or is it a dozen Olympic and Commonwealth Games now, Summer and Winter Olympics. And, you know, I saw Kieran Perkins win in Atlanta. I saw Kathy win in Sydney. I saw 2004 Grant Hackett win in Athens with a busted lung. At 2008, I saw Matthew Mitchum win in China. And 2012, I went to London and, um, of course, the swim team bombed out. And I said to the boss, man, phew, bugger all happening here. The sailing looks good. So I went down. I didn't come back to London. I went down to the coast and watched the sailing team win everything. And every one of those, you're interviewing the stars afterwards. I mean, Kieran Perkins tore me a new bum uh, in Atlanta because the swimming program is the first week of yeah. the Olympic Games. And I remember John Coates, who was the Australian Olympic boss, uh, he said, I think the people of Australia are entitled to feel a bit let down by the performance of the swimming team, which wasn't that flash. Well, I suggested that to Perkins on the, uh, was it the Sunday morning? It might have been a Saturday morning after he had won, um, Susie O'Neill had won, and Perkins just rounded on me. <laughs> he, gave, he gave me the rounds of the kitchen. I was just quoting uh, John Coates. So... Some incredible, thrilling memories uh, of great sporting endeavours by extremely talented young people. Do you pinch yourself, young bloke from oh, Christchurch? Hundred percent. But the, you know what? The most, the most exciting and thrilling and intensely emotional story I've ever done. I was lucky enough to go back with a bunch of old diggers to the Western Front in 1993. It was the 75th anniversary of the end of the First World War, and the Australian government selected a dozen old fellas who had served on the Western Front and half a dozen nurses. And they all had to be vetted for, for their health, obviously. They were 
in their 90s and into their hundreds. And so these were elderly, very elderly, but they weren't frail by, by any means. And to go back to the places like Bully Corps, Mont St. Quentin, Peron, Fromel, where five and a half thousand Australians were killed in one night, um, you know, to be there with those old fellas. And you consider Fromel five and a half thousand dead in one evening, one night of battle. And in eight months on, um, on Gallipoli, Australia lost 8,000 dead. And it does cause you to catch your breath. You do cry when you're standing here with these old boys and the French turn out to honour them and these old girls. The French turned out to honour them. All those years on. And you are my friend. Just we are me, whatever they – I'm not very good at French. But we went to a very special ceremony in the middle of the Arc de Triomphe. And if you've been to Paris, you know how crazy that traffic yep. is. And there was an old chap there who was – he would have been 110, was the uh, – a Frenchman. And wow. he had the – his suit was so old it was shiny. He had the beret and the medals. And he saluted these old Aussie boys and girls who were there. That was a moment I was I was just crying, and it was extraordinary. Hello, my darling. Can I please call you back? Thank you, darling. But that is the cheese and kisses. Wonderful. The the, the one that uh, that you met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the pub, <laughs> at the pub um, with Tony Delroy. So, so to be there and in in those circumstances, I've always loved history. Always loved English. I mean, I was studying American history and literature at uni when I decided to be a journo. So it's always meant a lot to me. As a Kiwi, you grow up a part of the Anzac legend. It's still very much alive over in New Zealand as well, having gone through that period with it did in Australia where yeah. perhaps no one cared quite so much. Look at it now. It's huge. It's a hum- enormous a part of the national uh, consciousness every yeah. year, you know, April 25. And, and that will never die now. Do you think that also is a bit of a dying art just in terms of uh, recounting knowledge and and being aware of history and so forth. These days, all you can do is just punch things into Google. But I tend to find that you just don't remember things as well as if you sit down and and read a book on something like that. I'm glad you said that. You're only half my age. I mean, I, I've I've read all my life, and um, I did despair for a while there, where I think half the newsroom they knew the Whitlam's was a pop band. They didn't know it was a political family. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I don't know why young people don't read anymore. I don't think the attention span is there, perhaps. Uh, I mean, as a little boy, I remember my dad built me a um, a crystal set. It's like a tiny radio receiver, and you had to hook it up. The aerial had to go up into the, uh, the uh, metal Venetian blinds, and I'd lie there in my bed at night listening to the All Blacks in South Africa. And reading, you read books, and that's where you get your knowledge from. Now they're just banging into Google, as you say, and... There's the, it's hard to get context when all you're doing is just going ping, ping, ping across Google. It's hard to get that that long perspective. Oh, depth. It's just, it's just a depth of knowledge, isn't it? There just seems to be a lack or a vacuum just there of, of knowledge which doesn't exist in people that um, are coming through the, the ranks these days. And, I, you know, I sound like an old fart and I'm only 38, but <laughs> I was <laughs> uh, my, um, my, my dad was a great, reader of history and he's passed that down to me and my grandma is also uh, like would sit down and whenever we'd have a gathering she'd tell me about something. I don't think there's 
the same amount of interest in in as you it all comes back to storytelling as it what, does, there, isn't what it? there is now. It does come back to storytelling and um, perhaps it is a lack of interest. Perhaps that art has gone as the older fellows have and older ladies have There's too have much died. interest in, in Justin Bieber and Kim Kardashian. Oh, <laughs> and that's making it into news bulletins. I had the same discussion with uh, Glenn Daniel last week and he just sort of said, well, we've got the balance completely wrong. While there's a whole lot of interest in this pop culture, there's not as much interest in the relevant news. That's what dr- drives our daily lives, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the economy, unemployment. Politics. Politics, yeah, and... I think Glenn's right. I mean, and I've got a good story about Glenn Daniel too. Oh, please share. Well, it's a, it's a lovely story and he, in many ways, didn't save my life, but he made me feel a whole lot better. Annie and I have got three kids, got two sons and a daughter. And anyway, uh, our second son, Tommy, was about a month old and we'd only just come back from Adelaide and I'd just taken this job down the road here at TUE as news director. And Annie is diagnosed with lymphoma and she's – Got a baby on the breast and it's cancer. Oh, I didn't know anything about cancer, and mm. so we've had to go. We have to go to the Mater Hospital, and she's been uh, put through a whole bunch of tests and surgery, and the chemo started, and the radio started, and I've sort of gone reeling out of there that particular day. And back then, Today FM was housed in a skyscraper just there on um, the Pacific Highway, opposite North Sydney school, North right. Sydney Girls School. And I thought, oh, Glenn's up here. I'll just go and say that again. I just had, I'd just gone out for a coffee because I just wanted to get away from the hospital. I just couldn't bear seeing my wife getting mm. all this crap done to her. And I've gone up uh, to the top level where today was and Glenn was in there. And I, I might have had a wee tear because I knew Glenn pretty well. And I've explained what's going on. And he said, guess what? I've had the same thing. I said, what? He had been crook with exactly the same thing many years previous. Yes. And I said, you're cracking. I was meant to go and see him. I was meant to go and see Glenn that moment on that day. And I thought, bloody hell, hang on a second. You're still here. I've pinched you. Here you are. My wife is still going to be here. And they told us. So Glenn just absolutely leveled me down. He settled me right down, leveled me out. They went and they, and they told us um, that um, we could never have any more children. But big Kiwi tadpoles, five years later, and Annie's pregnant with our daughter. And uh, so I'll never, ever forget uh, Glenn for that. And uh, it was uh, – you meet some great people in this in this journey we all go through, and he's one of the greats, you know. He just really – he really helped me out. Tony Delroy helped me out big yeah. time. Mark Collier, who was the news director way back in the day, helped me out big time. And there are people along the way who will give you a leg up. If you show any promise, you know, I, I love the swans policy, no dickheads. Yes. And you get dickheads in every area of your life, every walk of life, you, you find them. And guess what? If, if, you, if you're a straight shooter, you treat people. I believe in karma. I really do. My wife says, oh, you're old hippie, you know, you've had too much to smoke. Uh, maybe that's – I don't know if that's the case. Um, I do believe in karma. And if, if, if you're – there's a great line in a Little Feet song, you've got to be good to people on the way up because you meet them on the way back down. Yeah. It's true. It, it's, it's, it's so true. And there are a lot of egos and there are a lot of people in the industry that probably have overinflated opinions of, of themselves and, and won't help. But 
there are a whole lot more people that are, are really generous with their time oh. and, and being able to teach. And I think that's one of the, the great things that uh, you learn in this industry. You don't get paid a whole lot, but, geez, you learn a lot. Well, that's one of the great things that I've really, really enjoyed at 2SER the last couple of years, and that is when the light goes on, these youngsters are coming in there at five, pardon me, five in the morning. These youngsters are coming in at five in the morning from as far away as Penrith. And I'm there yelling at them, big hands on 12, we've got to have a bulletin to go to air, who, what, when, where, why and how, three pars and a grab, get it done, get it done. I don't know anything about sport. Learn it. How do I write this cricket story? I don't know about – what does it mean that I've declared? I said, I will teach you this. I will tell you this. And the other point I make, you might get a job with the ABC and you're the only person on at Rockhampton. You have to know how to write a cricket story. You have to know it. It's so true. I hate that excuse of being a sports journalist myself and having to have written a number of stories and leave stories out there for people. But – at the end of the day also, if live sport's happening, you've got to know the cricket score or the tennis score and or how to, how to interpret do golf or whatever. I'm just like, you're a journalist at the end of the day. You don't know every finance story that you're going That's to. Right. You don't know every complex uh, government story that you're going to, but you go there and learn. Sport's the same. It's, yeah. pretty, it's pretty straightforward. And you don't have to write a thousand words as I had to do and do for, for, for Larry Ross at Christmas 1977. You write three pars and a clip, and if you don't know, you ask. But, Minister, you're not making any sense. Can you just explain that for us? Ask the, ask the question again. Ask it again. That, do you think also that part is lost in today's media world where there's so many stage-managed media conferences, everybody gets the same story? Nobody is willing to probe and, and, and try and get a different angle to the story. The management of the message is particularly at politics. You know, state and federal politics, even at local government level, they're just paranoid about getting it wrong, about making a mistake, about stuffing things up. And so that kind of management of that message is all important. And yet, having said that, good journals will still get good yarns. And, you, you know, you look particularly this year, what an extraordinary year in federal politics. Wow. Extraordinary year in federal politics. The Libs vowed they'd never, ever tear down a, a, a Prime Minister. Well, Tony Abbott in the last two years. No. Gone. And this is just, it's, I think that's reflective of the way the whole media cycle works these days. Um, there's no, have a, you know, a break of a story on the Monday morning and we're still feeding on it on sort of Thursday. By, by Monday afternoon, the story's moved on. We yeah. just got, it's just accelerated, accelerated away, which it's a good thing. It's also a bad thing. There's not much time to reflect anymore, to think, well, where does that fit into the bigger picture? It's kind of like we've mirrored society in so many ways. We're a, um, we're a takeaway society. We're yeah. a fast food society. We want things happening. We want things quick and we want things now. And I guess that's the same with the way the news cycle has evolved into Twitter, which is minute by minute rather than, okay, you got your daily news in your, in your that's newspaper. That's right, newspaper. Then the issue was was discussed and canvassed throughout that whole day. Correct. Now it's within a half-hour time period that you're trying to get through a complex issue and then throw it out. <laughs> it just becomes vision chips. How have you embraced that <laughs> social media age? Have you? I've struggled with it. Yeah. I have at my age. Um, I know a lot of people, that's just an excuse, uh, a lot of people in their 60s are very good at it. I'm not. I don't 
pretend to be any good at it. If I need help, I will ask because guess what? All the students I'm trying to teach at 2SER, um, they're so savvy on it. Bang, bang, bang. Come here, old bugger. I can sort you out. Mm. Help me out here. Help me out there. Facebook, Twitter, da-da-da. But that basic premise, what we start off doing, telling stories, that never changes. That never changes. I know what you say about the media cycle and the management of that cycle, how a politician will stand up, give the spiel, questions, when he's had enough, we'll have one more, gone, you know, and that's fine. We all have maybe 20 journos there. We've got a dozen clips to choose from. We'll come up with a clip, second clip, and we'll go on to the next story. If you're the guy in town or the girl in town, there's another story. The phone's going, off you go, you have to go to court, or maybe the police stand up or da-da-da-da-da. Uh, you're still telling yarns. You're still telling stories. That will never change. I think it's important that you do have some sort of um, a sense of context. And if that only comes from reading a newspaper, I keep telling the youngsters in the newsroom, read everything you can, learn everything you can, suck it all up. It's no weight to carry. Learn everything. And then you can draw on that reservoir of knowledge when you're going to be writing the next lot of stories. You, you know who the finance minister is because you know he used to be the environment minister. She, she used to, I mean, look at Marie, uh, the new defence minister. Who would have thunk it? Apparently only one woman was good enough to be in Tony Abbott's cabinet. Mm. You know, now there are other voices in there, female voices in there. And will that be remembered in a couple of years? Um, I'll remember it. But will the young journos of who are coming out today remember it? I'm not sure. Possibly not. When you went from journalist to presenter, how did you find that in terms of being able to put together a show and be the host of the show? Did mm. you... Were you a little bit in two minds? Obviously, you have a, a great knowledge to draw on, but you weren't there behind the scenes chasing the story. You were the one uh, Presenting conveying it. the message. Yeah, I, look, I, I, it was, uh, it, I found it quite difficult at first, but I was working with a great old bloke called Bob Byrne who knew Adelaide inside out. And I was lucky I started down in Adelaide, I guess, um, because that uh, it's a smaller pond to dip your toe into. And... Uh, I, I did enjoy the transition. I mean, you get to tell stories flat out then and add break and bang. I, I often used to wonder about how you would cope. Um, at the I've always been in commercial. I've never worked for the ABC and in, in latter years they've never wanted me. So I've always wondered how on earth one copes when there's no ad break to go to. No. Yeah, they're like a shag and a rock. You've got nothing else to say. Oh. You've got to keep talking. You've I gotta, don't think you'd struggle, Murray. You've got to keep gibbering. <laughs> Look, the other big thing that I've noticed, the big change, having arrived here in 1981, so what, we're coming up to 35 years in Australia, in Australian media, when I got off the plane from New Zealand, there would have been 25 jobs up at Bathurst. Two radio stations, or, or no, yeah, there was commercial radio station, ABC, television. There was newspaper, magazines, 25 jobs. They're all gone now. Everything's yeah. centralised down in Sydney. Everything's centralised in Brisbane. How many people work in Rockhampton's journos anymore? How many people work in Murray Bridge in South Australia? They used to be venues where people would cut their teeth, where young journos would cut their teeth. You'd probably have more luck these days becoming a rocket scientist than a journalist. <laughs> like, like, seriously. But those jobs were so valuable because a young man and young woman would be sent out there. You'd do everything. You would do the police round. You'd be the local sports reporter. You'd have local government to do. You'd have uh, your school fates, your local traffic 
accidents, your black spots, your, you know, the bushfire. You'd do everything. You would learn on the job so much and then you've got so much more to bring back to the city when you want to make that switch back into the big smoke. Those opportunities have gone now. Everything seems to come out of this networked, this relayed. So those opportunities are no longer there, and I think that's just a tragedy. I really do. One of your great on-air partnerships was with Murray Wilton, the yeah. famous two Murrays. The great man. <laughs> that started here in the 90s first before it went to 2GB, then it came back again, didn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was such good fun. I mean, he's just a great bloke. Really, yeah. Uh, we're quite different. I mean, I'm intelligent. He's not. Um, I'm more mature. He's not. I'm th- thin and svelte. He's not. But when you seem to work, it just it was a great combo. And oh, it was the black I'm, and I'm white. A, it was the yin and yang. I'm a was... wee bit older than 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 Muzz, but sometimes I feel he's much. He he brings a lot of gravitas to a lot of things like shooting and uh, animal husbandry. Yes. He's very good on those things. <laughs> and you know, I'm still great pals. And you know, if if the chance ever came again to be back on air with him, I'd love it because we had such good fun. And the good thing about being on air. And, and you don't get this as a journo, filing stories for your hourly news bulletins. You get to talk to people in a different way and you're, you're engaging with people, with men and women who want to ring up and want to share stuff on air, want to share stories or experiences or anecdotes. And it's it's a real privilege. It's such a thrill to be part of that, to break stories, to explain stuff to people. Is it the telephone? Hello, this is Ralph. Sports. Sports department, Ralph speaking. <laughs> uh, Andrew's not in at the moment. Can I take a message? Okay, Damien Burke, is it? And he's got your number. Hang on. All right. What What is it for me there, mate? That's great. St George Cricket Club. Not a problem. I'll have him ring him uh, when he gets in. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye. He's the youngster who's got hundreds and hundreds of runs. Oh, of An course. An avalanche of runs. An avalanche. Wonderful. A All tsunami right. of runs. <laughs> A tsunami. That was beautiful. Yeah, well, um, that was lovely uh, the telephone uh, work there, Ralph. Oh, Excellent. I'm just picking them up as they go along. <laughs> now, what were we on about? We're on about the great Murray Wilton and how that partnership uh, evolved over the years. And, you know... If we ever got back on air again, it'd be fantastic because uh, I think we, we we bounce off each other pretty well. It's I mean, we just have fun, you know, mm. isn't that the key to it? There's yeah. too much horrible news around. Yeah, correct. You know, IS unemployment, car crashes, yuck. Mm. Just put a smile on people's faces. And hosting you, you learn a whole lot about your listeners, don't you? At the same time, sure which do. is, you know, they, as Alan says, they're your best researchers. They tell you stories you'll never find out anywhere else. They'll tell you stories. And, you know, all, all news is local. Look, it's a corny old cliche, but it's true because guess what? If it's happening in your neck of the woods, chances are it's going to be happening in mine or your grandmother's. Or I often think of a plain disaster. And, you know, that's, that's my wife coming over from Europe. It's your mum. Yeah. It's your brother's girlfriend, you know. It's, it, it, that's how local it can be. Someone's got a loved one that's involved. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, you do death knocks as a journal. Bloody horrible. Just terrible. Um, I'm not sure anyone does them anymore. I mean, you you send them an email or you tweet them. And that maybe I I don't want to sound like, you know, it's it's the end of the world. But but the whole media landscape is changing. 
look now, uh, because the youngsters coming out of uh, media schools, journalism schools and colleges, they do everything. They uh, file a radio story, they'll file a script for some online, then they'll cut the piece to camera and they'll be Twittering all the the while and they'll be doing a podcast later. Uh, (laughs) They do everything and that's not a bad thing either. No. I've got a whole set of skills that will really stand them in good stead. Well, that's the thing. You're the one that's going to stand out from the crowd if you can multi-skill. If you can, you know, write a news article and you can also uh, deliver a a voice report and yeah. then you don't look half bad, you can present it on TV as well. You uh, and I might struggle in that department. <laughs> well, certainly I would. <laughs> I would too. But uh, I think that's probably where it's going, isn't it, that um, – you see a whole lot of newspaper journos now with their heads popping up on TV to sure. comment on things yep. like that. So I guess the the message there is you've got to be able to move with the times, otherwise you get left behind. Move with the times, multi-skill, and some people have got better voices than others, but they still get on. Uh, and you're 100% right. I mean, look at the AP. You know, I remember when I was – I went to work for Channel 9 down in Adelaide in 19, 1989, 90. And I, I, I discovered in, in six or seven short weeks I was the world's worst newsreader. They had me as, uh, as a sports presenter. Well, we'd come back from the break, I'd be looking at the wrong camera. And I'll go, oh, over there, <laughs> over there. Oh, man, it was just a disaster, train wreck. Oh. But just great people. And um, How much of that is lo- knowing your limitations? Okay, Murray knows that he's not good on TV, but, gee, you can – write a uh, cracking yarn for radio or he's, uh, you know, he can do that kind of thing. Is like while we say multi-skilling's good, finding a niche is also uh, pretty beneficial in your, in your career. Yeah. I'll, the old niche reporter, I think maybe the niche – we used to have rounds. We used to have court specialists. We used to have police specialists. State politics, you've still got the odd rounds person in there, you know, young men, young women who, who specialise state, certainly federal politics. But are there any more court reporters – Left? Are there any more police reporters that were still out there? You have to do a bit of everything. Yeah. You, you have to do a bit of everything. If the if the whistle goes, you got to go and cover a bushfire. You got to go to the court instantly, quick, 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 bang, bang. So the point you've made is a very valid one. You got to be able to do a bit of everything. And it wasn't so long ago you'd go out with in, in, in TV. You'd go out with a cameraman, and they're almost always men. A lot more women these days. And you'd have a soundo. Yeah. And you might have someone to hold the light. But I suppose it was back in the days when the TV had money, when the media had money. Uh, well, these days you're, you're pretty much on your own. I had a fantastic year at Sky News uh, working with Greg Burns and Ian Ferguson and Angelo and some of the great men and women that, who work there. It is just frenetic, nonstop, under the pump, under the hammer because it's relentless. And you wouldn't know that watching it though because it just looks such like a well – crafted and smoothly run uh, sure. operation. And then I can imagine um, behind the scenes it would be like, you know, uh, a mouse on a treadmill. It's like a duck. <laughs> it is like the archetypical duck. looks smooth on the water underneath his gun like buggery. And that's what it's like. And it is a relentless beast. But uh, the reporters who present, who are out on the road for an outfit like Sky, like Sky News, they earn their money because they're everywhere at once. They're cutting stuff. They're doing stand-ups. They have to be their own camera uh, cameraman. Got to make their makeup. None of this, you know, nonsense. I'd go down there and have, I'd have the industrial strength uh, pancake applied before I'd go on the uh, on the set. Uh, these days, they just do everything, and that's 
you have to be able to do a bit of everything. So to get back to 2SER, I've got a narrow skill. I can teach them about radio. I can talk about print and, and TV as well. But radio, and when that light switch comes on and they've written two or three good stories for the next news, they go in there and they present it. I've subbed it. Maybe tighten it up a bit. They go and they've written it. They go and present it. They come out big smile, fantastic. Because guess who's listening? Grandma, their mum and dad, their brothers yeah. and sisters, their boyfriend. They're listening and they go, "Oh, buddy, how good was that?" That's the start. Because two SER, it might be a community radio station. It's a real radio station with real presenters and real researchers and producers and real journo's. And I get such a thrill out of it, man. It's just great. Pushes my buttons deluxe. You. Uh mentioned before about being versatile. You managed to uh, be John Laws's producer there for a while. What was it like working with the king? The king? Mate, that was awesome. That was fantastic. Um, where can you start? I mean, he is larger than life. I think he's coming up 80 now, and he's made a fortune on the back of his voice. He'll tell you himself. He wasn't very good looking. He'll tell you himself. He wasn't very educated, but he was the old school, original old school, and he was broadcasting to the bush, and he was original. None of this copycat stuff, and he he had his own thing from the time he was only – was he 18 or 19 when he went and started broadcasting in the bush? He's been doing it a long, long time, and it was such fun, such fun. And it goes back to knowledge, right? You know, he knew – what sting to play at a certain uh, time yeah. after a certain caller yeah. and all of that behind-the-scenes stuff and goes back to the whole banking of knowledge. You know exactly mm. what question to ask the Prime Minister. You know exactly what, like I said, what sting to play out of a, a break or what song to play just to capture the mood and that real craft of radio, which, again, I, I, it's, it's not something that can be taught and learnt straight away. No, it's something you develop over many, many years. And you mentioned, uh, you know, knowledge. It was Paul Keating who said, if you educate John Laws, you educate Australia. And so Keating, uh, he made the Banana Republic. I'm sure I'm right. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But have a look on Google. Hang on. Um, <laughs> when Keating said, uh, you educate Laws, you educate Australia. And he made that remark about the Banana Republic. Um, and he would come on Lawsy's show and it was – like an old-fashioned forum, you know, and it was terrific and, and they would line up to, to, to appear on the program. These days it's much more like show business. I mean, it, not that it wasn't show business with Lawsy. No. Um, it was kind of like larger than life. He was larger than life and he's, he's still going. Uh, he's still broadcasting in Sydney, I think, on, on, uh, on, on 2SM, still loving it. I'll carry him out of there in a box, I promise, because it's in his blood and it's old-fashioned and it works. It still works. People still love it. Now you're back here to your wee. I guess it's full circle for you, starting off in sport, now <laughs> doing sport. Um, what, 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 What's the future for you? Obviously still wanting to work with the young kids but still wanting to get out there and ply your uh, craft on the radio. Well, you know, I've, I've still got plenty to offer, but at 61 people don't necessarily want it. You know, it's it's very much a young person's game. I, I understand that. That's fine. Um, I'm very happy teaching, passing on whatever I can to the new generation. But you'd be you'd be a fool to write off old men and old women because of their age. We've still got a lot to contribute. And you know, one day you'll be sixty. You think, bloody hell, 
where have those years gone? And you look back and you think, you know, we did that well. We didn't do that so well. That was really good. That person there has kicked on. How well have they kicked on? I love turning on telly or turning on the radio and hearing people that we've worked with doing great stuff. I just love it. I get such a thrill. And that'll never die. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll be screwing down the lid and I'll say, just get quick. There's a, there's a bully coming along. Just turn that on, will you? Because that's – I still get excited when you beat the competition, when you kick their ass and you get their story out because guess what? Next hour they'll be kicking your ass. And you'll never lose that. It used to be a whole lot more pronounced 20, 30 years ago. I don't think anyone perhaps cares as much. No. But you'd get your ass kicked, then you'd you'd serve it back, and then you'd be at the you know you'd go down to the pub together and have a few beers. Now, what advice would you finally give for somebody who wants to become a radio journalist or a radio presenter? I think you have to have a real enthusiasm for the craft, and by that I mean you have to read, soak up everything you can. Know the Whitlam's are a, a family a political family as well as the pop band because chances are the Whitlam's will be coming at Australian Music Awards next year if they're still going. Um, be inquisitive. Be inquisitive. And if you get the chance and you actually got the start, don't have, you know, ten questions written down and go through the, every one of those questions. Have one or two or three hand grenade questions. Ask the first one, but listen to the answer because chances are that's where the next question will come from from what they say, listen, soak up stuff, read stuff, watch television, watch current affairs, know who the president is, know the, know the makeup of French politics all of a sudden because, you know, you've got the socialist government there, the, the Paris atrocity, Marine Le Pen on the far right. Is she going to make a, a, you know, before these regional elections, they said, oh, Marine Le Pen, watch her. She'll be running for president next year or year after. Well, all of a sudden the wheels have fallen off the far right. They haven't done as well as they thought. Put that stuff in context and then apply that knowledge to what you're doing here and now because the world's a very small place. The world's a small place. And the skills you learn here, Australia is as good as anywhere in the world. You can, you can travel. You can go to the UK. You can go and work. And, it might be a bit more difficult in the US, but you can actually travel on journalism. You can go and make a new life for maybe 12 months or a couple of years and then come home. You can go and, if you want to, go and live in freezing London. It never appealed to me. I much prefer the, the beaches and the beautiful summers and the cricket here in Australia. Is music still a big part of your makeup? Oh, sure, man. I love music. I still play drums in a, a couple of bands and we just go out and bloody make noise and have a lot of fun. So you made the right choice? Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I wanted to be a school teacher, I wanted particularly to be a primary school teacher. And they didn't want me. And now all these years later, two of our three children are, are, are primary teachers. So it's kind of weird. I don't know what's happened. Living vicariously through them. There you go. I know. <laughs> but one thing has, has changed there. We used to get beaten. We used to get beaten at primary school. Yep. We used to get strapped and caned. Cane. Didn't do you any harm, eh, Ralph? No. No, we're still here today. Murray, thanks very much for joining me. Great pleasure, mate. Love you to see you. There he is, the great Murray Olves. They certainly don't make too many like him. Uh, he's one of a kind and he's genuinely one of the best blokes in media. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Murray, please tweet a link to this show 
or contact me via at MediaMatesAU. As you've heard, Murray isn't really one for the modern technology. You can also check out the MediaMates Facebook page. Most importantly, though, please, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or a review, and that way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, have yourselves a Merry Christmas. I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.